Well, before we get started, we will pray, but we are in 2 Peter still, chapter 1. What we're going to do is I shortened it a little. Uh, We're going to look at verses um, 5 through 9. Um, I I was looking at 10 and 11, and and they are like their own sermon. Uh, So I cut cut that part out, and boom, I had something manageable. (laughs) Let's pray. Let's seek the the Lord. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your appointed day for your household, for your word, for your grace, your goodness. Uh, You are an abundantly loving and kind and compassionate and merciful God. uh, We stare at it with with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our being, and we we only barely understand the grace that surrounds your throne and fills your person that radiates from you. We thank you and we praise you and we pray, Lord, as we open your word now that you would um, soften the the soil of our hearts, that you would um, clear the worldliness from our minds, that you would firm up our hearts, that we may receive your truth and become more like your son. In whose name we pray, and amen. Now imagine, if you will, an, an extraordinarily generous person who comes over to your house and clears a five-square-foot section of your yard. They, they till it and remove the rocks. They fertilize it and set up a small fence to keep varmints away. And then they take a seedling of a fruit tree and plant it there. Now, imagine this person gave you the necessary finances and a book of instructions on how to care for the seedling so that you could raise it up until you had a stable tree producing a large quantity of fruit. This is the this generous person's uh, point. He wants you to have an abundance of fruit to delight in and to enjoy. And so he comes and he does all the work to prepare it, plants the seedling there, gives you everything you need to know how to take care of it, all the resources to take care of it. And then he promises to return regularly, daily, to check on its progress and your progress. He will help where needed. He will instruct and supervise. And if you fail, he will do the work himself. Now, How would you respond to such a generous person? Would you tell them that it's too much work? That it's too generous, right? I don't don't need that kind of handout. That it's too hard? Maybe you're like me and say, listen, I'm I'm not a green thumb. This isn't my thing. Uh, So thank you, but no thank you. Would you do nothing and expect them to do all the work? Well, they said they were going to come and do all the work, so I guess if I just pull up my lawn chair here right by this tree and just have some lemonade... Or would the generosity itself inspire you to show generosity to that tree? Would the generosity of receiving the tree be enough to cause you to be generous to the tree itself? Now, this metaphor explains exactly what Peter is talking about in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9. through 9. Jesus has come and he has planted a fruit tree of faith in each of you. He has granted to you everything that you need to cultivate the soil, to protect the tree, to feed it and nurture it and prune it so that it produces a stable crop of fruit. That's what we covered last week. The work is done. He's come, he's cleared the ground, he's planted the tree, he's given you everything you need. It's done. The the next thing we have to consider is then what are you going to do with the tree? Peter turns next to the instructions on how to care for the fruit tree, so that you can be as generous to the tree as God was in giving it to you. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Oh, oh, oh. that is dangerous stuff right there. Supplement my faith? Because the faith I received is inadequate in some way? Or is this supplement like vitamins, right? Do I, just, I need to give my faith a multivitamin every morning to make sure that it Right? It has the right iron balances. The phrase, for this very reason, he says, for this very reason. Now, what's the reason that he's talking about? Well, the reason he's talking about is verses 3 and 4, where he says, you didn't do anything, you received something. You didn't do anything. You received. And because you received, you should make every effort in the production of certain qualities that nurture this fruit tree that is given to you. God and his works are not only an object of praise, 
but also an ethical demand. What God does for us is something that we should worship him for, but it also is an, a demand. Him coming into our lives, is it, he's not just a, a presence like a friend coming over and sitting next to you. God coming into your life requires something of you. The indicative and the imperative cannot be separated. The facts of the gospel come before the ethical commands, but the good news of Jesus Christ once received requires that you live a certain way. And this is this has stumbled <laughs> generation after generation of Christians. Either it's all works or it's all grace, or you fall in some error in, in, in the middle. But generally, right, if you're like me, the car drives into works, into the works ditch. Well, I'll be honest. Sometimes I, li- I like to swerve big time. Like I overcorrect to go into the grace ditch. It doesn't really matter what I do. I mean, <laughs> he's so good. But this is the tension that the apostles were so good at. And you read the, all of the New Testament, and they are. this tension is alive and well, and it's everywhere. The Christian gospel, the good news, not of you, but of Jesus Christ, leads to Christian ethics. You don't have the ethics without the gospel. You don't have the gospel without the ethics. And separating the two has destroyed more than one person's faith. The car of our faith, right? We, it's like those Christmas commercials. My kids love uh, these car commercials during Christmas because the idea of somebody giving you a car for Christmas is just out of this world. So imagine you do. You wake up and there's, there's the Lexus and it's got the big bow on top and you think, man, this is amazing, right? And, and, and it's a gift. And you get in... And you're like, I'm going to drive this car all over the place. This is going to be amazing. And what you need to do is put the gas of the gospel in the car. And, and this is, again, yet another metaphor that makes it a little clearer, but you could easily get into all kinds of trouble. Because of our justification in Christ alone, we must seek sanctification in Christ alone. What we do is we do justification in Christ alone, sanctification in me alone. Right? That is an error that many of us make. But God saved us to good works. He didn't save us by good works. He saved us to good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You can't avoid it. You were made, you were saved to do good works. Your good works have nothing to do with you being saved. It is, however, what is required of you now that you are saved. Or required? Boom. And then see, you get in these little circular arguments where it's, it boggles the mind. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. That annoying person at the grocery store was ordained before time to test your faith. Right? That brother with the bad theology, as I said in the, in the call this morning, before time began, God knew that that person with that bad theology was going to be sitting next to you week after week after week after week. God knew it. He prepared you to love that person. He made this work for you to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He just used grace and work in the same sentence. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I therefore worked harder than anyone. Can we say that? The grace that we have received is the reason that I am out there loving people more than anyone else. Peter presents his virtue list using a very old literary device called a sorites. I literally wrote it down phonetically in case you were here, Laura. I said the word correctly. Sorites. I took it right off the dictionary. Now, this ethical chain of virtues is a literary device. Now, because this list that we're going to read confuses people. And they think, okay, now I have faith, so I've perfected my faith, and now what I'm going to do is I'm going to move on to virtue. Okay, now I'm going to work on my virtue, and I'm going to perfect my virtue. And then he says, once you've mastered virtue, go on then to brotherly affection. I'm going to work on my brotherly affection, and this is not what he means, though. It's just a literary device, and where he is, he, he's making a point, a poetic point, adding all the things that you need in order to fulfill the gospel in your life. Okay, He's not saying, do this one and master it and move on. He's just listing a bunch of them. Now, um, 
what people do with this verse is what, what they call the Ben Franklin ethics. Uh, ben Franklin, okay, well, controversy time. He was a Christian. He was about as bad as Christian as you are. That's what I always like to say. The founding fathers were all Christians. They were just as bad as Christians as we are, so we need to get over ourselves and stop calling them not Christians. All right. So Ben Franklin had this idea that he was going to perfect himself in 13 virtues. I'm not going to give you the 13 virtues because it's like the super old way of saying it, and they're not even really found in the Bible. They're like self-help virtues. So he kept this book in his pocket, and he had 13 columns down one side and seven across, and every time he committed that uh, a sin against that virtue, every time he failed in that virtue, he would put a little dot in it. And then what he would do is count up his dots at the end of the week and see if he was getting better at it. And then each week he put a different one at the top and focus on that one. And what he found when he first started doing this is that he, he was actually a lot worse a person than he realized. And, and But he also found over time, it, the week that he focused on the certain virtue, he did it really well. But then he went on to the next virtue the next week, and suddenly he was really bad at the other one. And he, he did this for a while and gave up on it. Now, we could tell stories about him also being a womanizing drunk, but, but whatever. He, he, he was a man who had a lot of issues. He quickly realized he could not perfect himself. If you know anything about him and his son, who was named after him, you know that the man had a lot of issues. There was no list of virtues that was going to get Ben Franklin to be a good dad. He couldn't do it himself. But a lot of people think that this list of Peters works that way. You focus on one thing for, for long enough, and you perfect it, and then you move on to the next. But that is not what this is about. Peter's ethical list is set firmly within the framework of knowing God and Christ. Pulling these verses out by themselves without having verse 3 and 4 is a very dangerous thing to do. You should, that's why you should always read the whole book. Uh, I have a, friend, a pastor friend. It's like he, he, he proof texts by telling you to read Romans. They're like, well, let's talk about grace. And, and you say a verse, and, he's, and he just says, see the book of Romans. So that's what we have to do here. If you take all the verses together, you understand that this list of virtues um, comes after he's told you you can't do anything to earn salvation. So now what I'm going to do is read these virtues, starting in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, I'm sorry, knowledge with yeah, self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with love. That's the list. Peter's list begins with faith. Why does it begin with faith? Because faith is always the beginning. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. See, there's the tree. God comes to you with this seedling tree, your faith, and he gives it to you. And then he says, okay, now here's what you do. You give it the sunshine of virtue, and you give it the water of self-control, and you give it the fertilizer of Christology, and, and you keep adding to it, and you're as generous to the tree as God was in giving it to you. That's what he's talking about. These things are organically linked together. Peter commands us to supplement the faith, to feed it, to nurture it, to provide for it. Now, see, the Greek word translated as supplement, supplement is, I think, a very bad translation of this word. It means to make available whatever is necessary to provide for, support, supply the needs of, or sustenance for something. And the way that it's used outside of the New Testament is always a benefactor. Uh, like a, like somebody who has a lot of money and they give a, and, and what they do is they they have more money than they can spend and so they're going to be a benefactor now and they're going to start a library and they're going to give everything that the that the library needs in order to open up and have the right books and this is something rich people always do they support artists and libraries and public works projects and this kind of thing and that's what this word actually means you are a benefactor and you're supposed to generously provide everything that the faith needs so then you're like, well, where do I get all the stuff? Well, Peter already explained where you get all the stuff that the tree needs. You've got it. You've got everything the tree needs. And the problem is, are you generous to the tree or not? This word supplement is generally used in reference to God and his abundant care of his children. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. He who supplies, that's the same word, God is the one who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food, 
will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. See, God gives to you in a way that increases what you have. And that's how you're supposed to treat your faith. You're supposed to give to your faith everything it needs to increase. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What is the mechanism by which God does it? He does it through faith. So if we want to increase thing, like increase our faith in our lives, is it done by works? Or is it done by this grace that God has given us? Colossians chapter 2, verse 19. Not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished, that's that same word, and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So you see how this word is used in the New Testament. It is this generous, overflowing kindness, um, supply, everything that is needed is given by God. And that he's saying he's taking that word, and that's now your attitude, the attitude you're supposed to have toward your own faith. So like the one who generously supplied the gift of, your, of our faith, we are to supplement that faith with everything it needs to grow up strong and unwavering. We don't go into the heart of ourselves. We don't go into our own lives and get something out and give it to the tree. Everything that we give to the tree comes from God. All of these things that he says to supplement it with come from him. Supplement your faith with virtue. The word translated as excellence in verse 3 is here translated as virtue in verse 5. It is best understood as moral excellence and was used in verse 3 to designate what God has called us to. He's called us to virtue, his virtue. He says, now that you are my children, come and have this virtue, my virtue. I'm going to now make you a partaker of myself so that you have the same moral excellence that I have. But what's interesting about this word especially outside of the New Testament, is that it is a communal word. Right? This virtue isn't just you personally having good qualities, right? like being an upright person. It, it, the, the word virtue is a communal idea. Moral, this moral excellence he's talking about lives in community. It designates a person as someone of consummate excellence or merit within a social context. In other words, the person of virtue demonstrates excellence of character shown in generosity towards others, surpassing what normal constraints, surpassing normal constraints of duty. Special emphasis is placed on actions that demonstrate this moral excellence. This moral excellence does not exist in a vacuum. What was Jesus like? Did Jesus come and walk around on this earth being morally perfect all by himself in a little bubble, not getting near anybody else? No, what, what makes him him is how he acted towards others. That's what makes his more, right? His moral excellence is, is not something that, that just existed within himself for himself. The person marked by virtue is someone who loves his neighbors through acts of love like the Lord Jesus did. And so you feed your faith by loving others. Christ's virtue is seen in his actions. His perfection and incorruptibility are distinct from his moral excellence. We think the two things are the same. He was incorruptible, yes, but that's not the moral excellence. The moral excellence is seen in the fact that the blind man is made to see, that the multitudes are fed fed, uh, fish and bread. It's what he's doing that shows his moral excellence. And you show your moral excellence by what you do for others. And by doing it, you're actually feeding your own faith. Paul helps us understand this from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, there's that word, excellence, virtue, If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen, practice these things. Purity and justice are traits that require a community. Purity and justice can only exist when there are people doing unjust acts and people who who to be impure about. Impurity isn't something that just happens for me all by myself. Justice isn't something that an individual who, who has no community experiences. These, this whole thing is directed towards others. 
practice these things, he says. This moral excellence is a practice. It's not simply something that exists internally. The virtues that Peter is exhorting his readers to are not matters of the secret heart. And, and, but this is the pietism that haunts the modern church. My pietism is all about me and, and perfecting this. And moral excellence is my ability to control this and what I desire myself or don't desire, yada, yada, yada. It's very selfish and self-centered. Modern Christian moralism is extraordinarily selfish. What Christ wants is he wants us to increase our faith by being like him. And he was always focused on others over against self. You want to show your moral excellence? Be pure in your conduct towards others. Do you want to show your moral excellence? Um, Be just towards others. Concern yourself with justice. Concern yourself with the welfare of others. That will show you to be a morally excellent person. So Peter says, supplement your faith with neighbor love, which is our calling in Christ. We have a wealth of truth, of beauty, of justice, right? This is this excellence that Paul was talking about. What is true, beautiful, just, good, and excellent? Jesus is. (coughs) And the more we... um, the more we familiarize ourselves with what Jesus did and didn't do, the more we can imitate what he did and didn't, he did and didn't do, and we feed our faith and we show ourselves to be morally excellent. Supplement this with the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, this we covered last week at length. Faith comes through hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ goes out and it does not come back empty. It goes out and it fulfills the thing Right? This knowledge that we receive is knowledge that is active and living. It's working on us even when we're not thinking about it. The knowledge of the gospel goes through the passive ear down into the dead heart and saves the hearer. And what it does is it continues to save the hearer. The knowledge of God is not the fruit of human inquiry or speculation. Everything needed for eternal life is mediated through the knowledge of Christ. Remember, eternal life is knowing him. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So the knowledge that he gives us keeps working even when we're not thinking about it. And so if you have your faith, if you put a generous heap of knowledge on top of it, it's working even though you're not there with, right? It's not like you're standing over the plant watching it work. What? A leaf. The whole idea is you come and you put knowledge on this and then you go about your business. This is why a devotional life is so important. People think, well, you know, I read this and I didn't really... Have you ever had this happen? You read this big... You're waiting for this huge moment. You're reading scripture and you're like, okay, I'm about to get shazammed here. Right? Then you read the opening of 1 Chronicles, which I did the other day. This is just a list of people. I don't know who they are. And I thought, you know, this is the word of God. It's going to do... It's going to do something for me, even though I don't really know what it is. And I I had faith that this not like this list of people. It's so bizarre. Go look at first. It's like seven chapters of like, oh, these are all the people that were during Adam's time. And these are all the people that came back from the exile. It doesn't even explain what the exile is. It's just a list of people for nine chapters. And, And that's our God. Sit down and read it. It'll feed your faith, even even though you don't understand it. It's active knowledge, not knowledge at rest. We're going to expand on this idea as I add some other virtues. Supplement your faith with self-control. Now, this one is a perfect example of of the tension in this whole thing. He says, add self-control. But we find out from Galatians that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So which is it, buddy? Do I sit here and I get it from the Spirit, or do I... Do I create self-control? Paul, again, we, right? This is why you get the apostles together and you have them have a conversation about these topics and you tend to learn and understand what they're talking about. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, Do you not know that, a, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we in unperishable. So do not run aimlessly. 
I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, the best way to describe this, I learned this from Dean many years ago when, when Titus was little, and um, we wanted to train him in self-control. Well, there's, there's two ways to do it. You kind of hope and pray for the best, or you do something like this. You take a bowl of M&Ms, and you put it on the coffee table where the little guy can reach it, and you say, if you touch those, I will spank you. Yes, it is entrapment. In case you're wondering, it is. Right? There's no qualms about that part. So then you just sit there and you read a book and you wait. Right? And then all of a sudden you see the little head on the other side of the coffee table and the hand. You get up and you swat them. You say, listen, I told you not to touch these. You touch them and now I'm going to swat you. And then you pray with them and you send them on your way and you're like, no, don't touch the M&Ms. And then you sit down and you read your book. And you keep doing this until you know what happens. They stop touching the M&Ms. Now, hold on. There's a, right? Then we go on to the next thing they're not supposed to touch, like the TV controller. But you understand the, the method. And this is what we are supposed to do for ourselves. Now, if you read uh, Proverbs 17, it's very clear you're not supposed to tempt temptation. You're not supposed to tempt temptation to tempt you. Right? Walking by the whore's house, as it says in Proverbs 17, is a bad way to walk uprightly in sexual ethics. Right? Going by the strip club is not the way to avoid this, that sin. So th there is some tension here in this, but we have to understand it. Are we adding to our self-control? Are we aware of where we don't have it in our lives, and are we, we doing things to purposely learn self-control? Now, and, and this is another one. <laughs> People are always shocked by how this works. I'm constantly shocked by when I pray for patience, things happen that try my patience. Because there's only one way to increase in patience, and that is having it tested. Well, this works the same way. If you ask God to help you with self-control, right, you are going to be tested. Now, if you want more self-control, like Peter says, add to your faith self-control, what you want is you want God to do it. That, that's what Peter's talking about here. Are you engaged in this process? Do you know that you drink too much? Do you know that you smoke too much? That you smoke at all? Right? Is there something you know you're doing that you're not supposed to be doing? Do you want to increase in self-control? Well, then have a conversation with God about it, because who gives you more self-control? He will. But does that require you to do nothing? No. And that this is the, the tension of this entire list. He's the one doing it, but you're not just this bystander sitting around look, looking, oh, look at what God's doing in my life. Man, this is amazing. And you just reap all the benefits. This is excellent. <laughs> I know it. Tomorrow I'm going to pray for patience. And I'm just going to look at my watch and be like, here it comes. Because if we are loving parents and we put that bowl of M&Ms out there, right? And we do it because we love them. We want them. I, I, I don't want to wait and teach it to them after he, right? I want them to be prepared ahead of time with the self-control. And, and as the kids get older, you add, right, you, you up the ante a little bit and a little bit. Right? Try putting a stack of 20s out there. Don't touch them. Right? And, and if we do this, how much more does God do this? Right? But, but what Peter wants us is engaged in the process. Okay. Closely related to self-control is the need to supplement our faith with steadfastness. These are very similar ideas. Endurance is, in, is a better translation. Perseverance. Perseverance is developed in us when God tests our faith. There is no other way. He's saying, add to your faith steadfastness. And the only way that you can increase in steadfastness is when God brings difficult circumstances to you. He brings the bowl of M&Ms, the heaping bowl of M&Ms, and sticks it right in your face. Like, ah, take away the M&Ms. No, don't take away the M&Ms. Give me self-control. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy. Whew. James, calm down. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Right? And if I went on Facebook, I could show you Christians right now just overjoyed by the trial. I couldn't, I'm sorry. I couldn't. <clears throat> Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And I checked. I looked up the word steadfastness in the other translations of it. I looked for another verse that could possibly tell me it comes in any other way, and there isn't one. This is the only way to get it. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Whew, that is a big promise. You endure trials, you increase in steadfastness, and what it does is it perfects and completes you so that you're lacking in nothing. Right? This is how Paul could say, I'm content in all things. I haven't eaten in five days, and I'm a happy man. I eat five times a day, I'm a happy man. I have nothing, I have everything. Everyone hates me, everybody loves me. And, and the reason is, is that it, it, it perfects and completes him so that he lacks nothing. This is what Paul is talking about. He went through trial after trial after trial, and it perfected and completed him so that in every circumstance he was prepared. Now... Again, the tension is alive and real. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 through 5. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, for you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, how did Christ grow to be a steadfast anchor of our faith? What did he have to endure? So why is it if you want steadfastness, you think you're going to get it some other way? Right? He didn't revile when he was reviled. He didn't hate when he was hated. Right? He endured all these things. And his steadfastness now, he ascended into heaven, which is what we're going to talk about next week. And he, he now is the anchor of our faith. He's the thing, you want, you want that tree to grow up, right? Tall enough to that, that steadfastness that's there. That's the standard. You want, I want to be perfect and complete up there where I don't need or want for anything. And so the trials come. And then, right, we go to Facebook. Honey, I can't go to bed. There's someone wrong on the internet. We go on there and we're just like angry and furious about these circumstances. And why is this happening? And it's like, but it's like God's giving you a job, right? Because right? this is what I love about fertilizing. My mom used to do it. This truck would back up and they would dump bull waste in the front yard and it smelled like bull waste. And then I would have to stand there all day shoveling it onto the rose bushes and shoveling it over here and it smells awful. But, but it gives everything life. And so God comes with the truck into the front yard and he's like, you know what your faith needs right now? Bull waste. And you're like, no, that smells terrible. Take that in my neighbor's house. Downwind. But he's telling you, no, lean into it. Get the shovel. Spread this stuff around. Spread it on, right? You got enough there? Spread it on your neighbor's yard too. Jesus gave us an example of how to endure and how to grow in steadfastness. And he himself is our steadfastness. So we can't shy away from the difficult circumstances. We lean into them. Familiarize yourself with what Jesus endured and how he overcame it. Pray it. Water your faith with the tears of crying out and to God in the midst of it. And then go on and supplement your faith with godliness. Here's another connection uh, forged between these verses and verses 3 through 4, because believers have, by God's grace, already been given everything they need for life and godliness. Here we see that the imperative stands on the indicative. Christ has given believers everything to be godly, and yet believers must pursue godliness. That is the, that's the tension of the Christian life. I have given you everything you need to be godly, so go pursue godliness. What? Like, we think of it as like a set of encyclopedias. Like, we've got it. It's like there. We've got... We've got all this godliness, and we just put it on the shelves, and we, you know, we occasionally take a volume down and look at it. But that's not the god. The godliness that we've been given is something that we have to pursue. And what you find is every every time you, when you're there, you're chasing it, and you catch up with it, and you're like, oh, man, you're running pretty fast. And there's and it's Jesus. He's like, oh, you caught up. Good, good. Okay, well, see you in a minute. And then he sprints off. Has this ever happened? Have you ever had a moment of glorious godliness where you're like, man, that was so godly of me. And then like two seconds later, it's like you're Peter, you know, you're like Peter. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Keep running. 
This, this is what godliness can be like. We have all of it that we need, and yet we are called to pursue it. Now, the word godliness is especially common in the pastoral epistles for living the kind of life that pleases God. Now, and again, if you, if you want an example of this, study David. David was a man after God's own heart. Yes, even with the Bathsheba thing. Even with the Absalom thing. Right? Because there was always like a, a, a David-sized hole in the wall when he sinned. It's like, whoa, there went David. Man, look, you can see his shape. In the, he just went big with that sin right there. Left a big hole in the wall. But he repented just as big. Right? This is, Luther said, when, when you're going to sin, sin boldly. And I love that, that quote. If you're going to sin, do it. Just go big. Right? And then repent just as big. God wants boldness. And he wants people who cry and, and rend their garments and pour out their hearts when they have failed. And, and if you want an example of that, study David. See, 1 Timothy 3.16. This is what we read last week. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. This is what God wants you to do. He wants you to pursue godliness. And then he tells us, what's godliness? He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. If you want godliness, his name is Jesus Christ. And if you pursue him, then that's what you're pursuing, is godliness. Pursue him. And the more you pursue him, the more you are supplementing your faith. You're putting on generous heaps of Christology onto this little faith plant that you have, and that's the way to get it to grow up. Christology. Christology means to study. Study Christ. It's the doctrines involving Jesus. Okay? Get your Bible out, and here's what you do. Read the Gospels. Then when you're done, read them again. Then you get Lethem's Systematic Theology, and you read all the sections in there. Forget all the other sections. Read the one about Jesus. Then you get Mark Jones's book, Knowing Jesus. Well, then you get J.I. Packer's book, Knowing Jesus. And you know what you're going to find is there's a lot of similarities there. But you're also going to find over time is that you, you get to know this person better and better and better and better. And then here, you want a real apostolic treat. Read Judges. And look for Jesus in there. Where's Jesus in Judges? It's all about Jesus. And so if you go and you read a book like Judges, what does it teach you about Jesus? And that's pursuing godliness. You're pursuing him. That's pursuing godliness. And the more that you do that, the more your faith is supplemented and strengthened and it grows stable and it grows strong and it bears a great deal of fruit. And now, right, this is why he, the way these are compacted together, he says godliness. And we learn from Paul and Timothy that godliness is Jesus. And then he goes on, Peter here, and he says, supplement your faith with brotherly affection. These are all Jesus. Every one of these virtues that he says, these qualities that he says, pursue them, supplement your faith with them. The answer, what they are, all of them, is Jesus. This is what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And who, who did that? Who outdid everyone in showing honor? by taking people like us and making them God's children. The word is Philadelphia. Yes, that is where the name of the city came from. Philadelphia is this brotherly affection. In the Old Testament, the words brother and neighbor and fellow Israelite, in, in the Old Testament, when they talk about your neighbor, they are generally actually not talking about your neighbor like the way Jesus is. In, in the Old Testament, they're talking about neighbor in the sense that we talk about our brother or sister. This love that we're looking at here, brotherly affection, isn't a common man brotherly affection. It's a brotherly affection towards other believers. Jesus called his followers his own and one another's brethren. And the Joannine command to love one another established the special love of, fe of fellow Christians, which Philadelphia describes. They're not talking about just, oh, the brotherhood of man. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. See, he doesn't say the world. He says us. 
and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And this is what I find to be quite interesting in Christians. We talk all about the neighbor, but we don't talk much about the brother. Because we have this kind of weird thing, really practically now, where we love our neighbors, but we don't like our brothers very much. Right? We can make some city church jokes now, if you like. We can make fun of those people who only meet on Saturdays. Baptist jokes. Anybody? No, we're not. See, we don't do it in church. But if I was over at your house, you'd hear a Baptist joke, right? I wouldn't. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Amen. How about your brother, too? How about your sister? And I mean, I'm not talking about the one that, that already likes the things you like. I'm talking like, right? You're all about grace? Find somebody who's all about law. You're all about law? Find somebody who's all about grace. This is what I was talking about last week about the Inklings. We've lost our way with this. Right? Get some Catholic friends. I said it. Right? Make friends with some Baptists. How about you go down to City Church and you hang out outside the door and you just meet and greet somebody and you're like, you know what? You people seem to sing with a lot of verve and pep. Can you show me how? Like, the, right, where is the family of God? Is it just in this room? Brotherly affection is something that we know very little about. We think we know a lot about loving our neighbors, and we don't. But we talk a lot about that. How about loving your brothers and your sisters? Yes, that one. First John 4.21, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And, and actually, in First John, it's really... Uh, Baker, who's an elder at our church from Trinity, years ago he did a sermon here, and, it was, and, and Steve and I have talked about this. He, he says, you want to know if you're a Christian or not? And he doesn't mention baptism. He mentions loving the brothers. John, the apostle, talks about, do you, do you want to show that you are a Christian? Do you want to know that you're a Christian? Check how you're loving your brothers. And I thought, I thought it was just my baptism, me and the water and Jesus. Okay, sorry, move on. Brotherly affection, just like Jesus. Supplement your faith with love. There we go. We come to the end. Does anybody else? This is a long list, and it's warm in here. But he went from godliness to brotherly affection and brotherly affection to love, and he did it on purpose. Because you start with faith, and the point is you grow up to love. Okay, And all that other stuff in the middle isn't like slots. It's not like playing Connect Four. All those other things that are organically connected to one another, and, and the organic connection is Jesus. First Timothy chapter one verse five. This is what Paul says: the aim of our charge is love. Now, the aim—the thing that you're aiming at, right? Imagine you have a bow and, a, and an arrow, and, and you got the target out there that looks like you know the target, target, old school. What are you aiming at? Well, the blue dot in the middle. Right? That, and for us, the aim of our charge is that. It's love. That's what all the actions we're doing, we're aiming there. And we're making a lot of noise doing it. And when he says the aim of our charge, the charge is the apostolic faith. The word that he uses there that's translated as charge is this huge word in which they use to summarize everything that the apostles taught. So everything, the entire New Testament is an arrow. And the, and the aim, the thing you're pointing it at is love. That's the point. You grow up to love. And this is what happens, Peter says, in chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you are not increasing in these qualities, you are blind, you are fruitless, you have forgotten what it means to be a Christian. You've forgotten that you're baptized. You've forgotten that you're separated in any way, shape, or form from the rest of the world. Without these qualities, he says that you are not fruitful or effective in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say that you don't have the knowledge. He says that you are not fruitful or effective with it. Too often, the seedling of faith is unkept and neglected. It isn't received with the same generous spirit with which it was given. 
If the godly qualities of verses 5 through 7 exist and abound in the lives of believers, they are neither ineffective or unfruitful. They may be saved. They may be saved. But they are just sitting on the ark as passengers. They are useless when it comes to the Christian mission. And this is, again, we want all or nothing. You can be saved and be useless to us. Right? I go, I meet Christians. I've been hanging out with Christians now for 15 years. And there's an awful lot of saved, useless people including me. You can be saved, right? And we're like, oh, well, you're not fruitful, therefore you're not saved. No, that's not what he says. There's this category here, which is why I have a job. Saved, but unfruitful. So don't go from here and be like, oh, well, you know, I'm not very fruitful, so I must not be a Christian. No, you've taken the wrong lesson. You are a Christian. You're just not much use to us. And what God wants is you to be useful. He wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to be effective. And if we look around as a church and we think, well, we're not very effective and we're not very fruitful, the, the problem isn't that we're not saved. The problem is, is that this little plant that was put in our backyard, we, we forgot about it and, and we don't visit it much. We don't put much brotherly affection on there. We don't put a lot of, a lot of virtue on there, a lot of moral excellence. We're, the thing is just in the backyard. Right? This recently happened. My poor wife. She, put, she had this tree, and she put it there, and she put these big rocks around it in this part of the yard uh, that even my boys don't weed very often. I don't weed it at all. And over time, what happens, do you think? I mean, the tree was only like this big. Well, I couldn't, right? There goes Titus with the weed whacker, and he can't tell the difference. It's like a tree. What tree? Right? It all looks like weeds to me. Well, the tree is still there, believe it or not, but it's very small. And, it, and it's completely stripped. I was like, well, you know, Titus, next year when you uh, weed whack this section, <laughs> make sure to remember the tree. And, and this, is what it, this is what most of us are like. The tree's there. We've just neglected it. We're waiting for someone else to do it. We have other things on our mind. And, and Peter wants to give us a very effective, very straightforward way to go out there and weed, to fertilize, to water, to give it the right amount of sunshine, to, to be generous with it. God's way is always generosity. And, and with the things that he has given you, he wants you to likewise be generous with them and generous to them. He's given you this church, this body. He, right? That's very generous of him. It may not always feel like that, but it is. And he wants you to likewise be generous with it. He's given you a mind. It was very generous. He wants you to be generous with it, and he wants you to be generous to it. He's given you a faith, and he wants you to be generous with it, and he wants you to be generous to it. And we forget this. And there the little tree is. Languishing. Now, so what are we talking about here? Are we talking about works righteousness? I hope that I've made the point that we are not. But if we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. What, what? Because I like mental pictures. Mental pictures help me understand what we're talking about. How do we put all of this together in a way that, that helps us understand what we're supposed to right? When we leave here, what are we supposed to go do? Well, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Somewhere in here I have notes on this. There it is. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. 
We are given the works of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the ministry of the word and sacrament to equip the body for ministry, to be taught a unified faith so that we might grow up to mature manhood, a community to love and in which to exercise moral excellence, to grow up in the knowledge of Christ, to the full stature of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we grow up. Working together properly, the whole body grows up together in love. This is not a list of virtues to pursue alone. This is not Ben Franklin's self-improvement piety project. This is the body of Christ ministering Christ to the brothers in Christ to grow up to love like Christ. It's the brothers and sisters of, of Christ feeding one another, stirring one another up, Speaking the truth in love. This is a thing that we are doing together. And and this is where, wait, so if I have a fruitful tree and you have a fruitful tree and he has a fruitful tree and she has a fruitful tree, what do we have? An orchard. We no longer have just a little bush back there accidentally getting weed whacked. We've got a forest of fruit trees. And doesn't the world need that? See, we heard it earlier. You know, Paul says something very interesting. He says that, that he went out and worked hard and built a foundation. He says, I built a foundation. That was what was read for us earlier. But then he turns right around and he says something very strange. He says, well, the only foundation is the one that Jesus laid, which is Jesus himself. And I'm like, wait a minute. Who laid the foundation? Well, he laid the foundation. And what was the foundation that was, that was laid? Well, it was Jesus laying the foundation. And that's what this is talking about. You believe. Excellent. Even the demons believe. What are you doing for the fruit tree? Are you being generous to it? What, what, is, it, what is it lacking? Right? It's not you doing it. God has provided. He's coming. He says, listen, I have all the resources you need, everything you need to know. I, I will come in abundance and give you everything to pour on this little tree. Why aren't we? What's preventing us? What do we do about it? The world is hungry. The world is thirsty. The world needs the fruit of the church now more than ever. And that's supposed to be us. Right? And in the hour of need, we're like, don't worry, we've got plenty for everyone. No, we barely have enough for ourselves. So let's put on Christ. Let's grow up to Christ. Let's, let's, let's feed our, this, faith, this faith. Let's be as generous to this sweet little plant of faith that, that, as the Lord was in giving it to us. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word which cuts to the heart, which exposes our sins, which shows us your grace. We know, Lord God, that we are not Jesus, that nothing that we can do in this life will make us equal uh, to him, but we know that you are making us co-heirs with him. You are making us uh, into uh, creatures that will live forever, being sons, daughters, and co-inheritors, co-rulers. You are doing a wonderful work in, in and we see it in one another. We see it in our, own, in our own lives. And we pray, God, that we would not be passive, not be apathetic to what you are doing, but that we would understand it and grow to understand it more deeply and, and participate and put, outdo one another in, in loving one another and working on this faith that you have so generously given us. That we pray, God, that you would go, as we go from here, that you would bless us and continue to be generous to us as we grow in being more generous to the faith that you've given us. And amen. amen.